All right, well, for the last time, let's turn in our Bible, shall we, to Revelation chapter 22. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers. They'll be happy to get one into your hands. Revelation 22, verses 6 to 21, focusing on the last few verses of this passage. Revelation 22, verses 6 to 21. I trust that that abbreviated worship leaves you desiring more. I know it does me. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not quite ready to open up God's Word. I trust that that leaves you with just an anticipation and that your anticipation will build throughout this message for some extended worship at the end. Because that's where we're headed. We're headed to some extended worship because that's where we're headed for all eternity. Amen? To some extended worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been working our way through Revelation, catch this, for almost two years now. Having started of January of 2022, seems like a distant memory. Almost two years now, and this is it. The last sermon in the last series. And for me, somebody had already asked me this morning, for me it's a, a little bitter and a lot sweet. And maybe, in fact, I hope the same is true for you as well. A little bitter that this is the end and a lot sweet because we've invested a lot of time and a lot of effort into this study of God's word. And I trust that you well know and that you've come to the conclusion that any amount of time, extended or short, that you spend studying the word of God, that you spend in the word of God is good time, is precious time, is significant time. A little bitter, a lot sweet. We've invested a lot, and so has the Apostle John. And we're at the end of some final reminders as his vision of the end draws to a close. In part one, I encourage you to pay attention, keep the faith, and worship God. Final reminders. Part two was spread the word, come clean, take it to heart, and extend an invitation, an invitation to eternal life. All of which then brings us to part three in verses 18 to 19. You follow along. I'll read. I warn everyone, John says, who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. It's a final reminder, first of all here this morning, to be careful with God's word. Be careful with God's word. First reminder this morning and what the eighth reminder overall. Be careful with God's word, whether it's the eschatology of Revelation or the Christology of the Gospels or the theology of the whole Bible. Be careful with it. If it applies to Revelation, it applies to the whole, for sure, for sure. Especially here at the end of the whole book of the Bible. Moses even said so in the Old Testament in so many words to be careful. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it. It's an exhortation to be careful then and now. An exhortation, an urging to be careful with God's word. And heed the warning. I warn everyone, John says. You see it there? If anyone adds to these words, verse 18, God will add to him. It's a warning. 
anyone adds to these words, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Listen, listen, add to God, put words in his mouth and he will add to you. He'll put plagues in your life. That's the idea. Put words in his mouth and he'll put plagues in your life. Plagues, as we found, of great tribulation. From difficulty and death to fire and famine. And not just later on in the great tribulation, but even now. The, the warning is applicable now. Instead of being protected from the wrath of God, you'll be subject to it. Instead of avoiding it, you'll bear the brunt. Be careful with God's word. Because if you add to it in any way, shape, or form, you show that you're a part of the world instead of his kingdom. A child of darkness instead of light. That's the implication here. I mean, what you do with, this could be the most important sentence, the most important statement that I make all morning. What you do with this book, how you handle it, how you treat it, shows who you are and where you stand with God. It does, it does. How you handle this book shows who you are, whether or not you're in Christ or not, and where you stand with the Almighty God. That's the idea of his warning. Same for the second part of the sentence. Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, as opposed to adding to them, if anyone takes away, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. Take away from God, and he'll take away from you. In this case, eternal life in the new Jerusalem on the new earth. That's why how you handle this book it shows where you stand with God. Shows who you are and who you are not. Now, that's not to say that you can lose your salvation. This statement here in Verse 19, it is not to say that you can lose your salvation. That would run, would run contrary to a host of other verses in the Bible. Revelation included, like Revelation 3.12. The one who conquers, that is the one who holds fast and overcomes the world. The one who conquers, Jesus said, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A permanent part of worship. That's what pillars are. They're a permanent part of worship. I will make him a pillar, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who holds fast and stays the course and perseveres in the faith. Never shall he go out of it, out of God's temple. That is, never shall he be apart from the worship of God. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. It's been almost two years since we talked about that, but I trust that that rings a few bells. In other words, the one who perseveres and overcomes will be permanently marked as a child of God. Forevermore a part of his worship. Forevermore a part of his temple, his church. So Revelation twenty-two nineteen at the end can't be saying that we can somehow lose all of that. That we can somehow lose our salvation. Rather, if we intentionally alter this book or intentionally ignore some of it or intentionally subtract from it, 
We show our lack of salvation, our true colors. And what would have been ours had we preserved what it says will be withdrawn. That's the idea. So whatever you do, whatever you do, hold it in high regard. Be careful with God's word as in hold it in high regard. Honor it and treat it with the utmost care and respect. And I'm not talking just about how you handle your physical Bible, though that too is a part of it. I learned early on in life as a kid, I remember, I don't know who said it to me, but somebody said it, like, you need to treat this book as the book that it is, instead of just tossing it, you know, somewhere on the bedstand or tossing it on the floor or letting it just sit wherever on the, the dash of your car as if it's just another book. You need to treat it as the word of the living God that it is. Living word of the living God. But I'm not just talking about how you treat this book physically here when I say hold it in high regard. I'm talking about how you view what it says. Whether you think it's something to be heard and heeded or something, you know, trivial or optional. Something true in its entirety or only in certain parts. Something necessary for life and godliness or just a bunch of words. That's what I'm talking about mostly when I say hold it in high regard instead of picking and choosing the parts you like or instead of ignoring the parts you don't like hold it in high regard all of it all of it front to back middle every single part every single word every single sentence it's all a treasure honor it all in both your thinking and your life because your actions speak louder than your words anyway all of our actions speak louder than our words you can say that you hold this book in high regard, but if you don't live it out, you don't. Honor it all in your convictions and your application. Second, let it speak for itself. Hold it in high regard. And, and, and secondly here, let it speak for itself. Let it say what it means Oh man, this, this one applies to so many aspects of our life, so many aspects of, of those of us who, who are in church week in and week out, those who aren't in church week in and week out, those who are priesters, everything in between. And this applies to so many, every single one of us. Let the Bible say what it means instead of making it say what you want. It's the spirit of the age, one of the many, one of the many. Let the Bible say what it means Instead of making it say what you want, whether it's tithing, church leadership, homosexuality, or the substitutionary atonement of Christ, just for a really, really short list. Like if it says bring your full tithes into the storehouse, do it. Do it. If it says only men can be pastors and elders, obey it. Stop fighting against the goats. It's God's word. If it says homosexuality is wrong, agree with it. Lovingly so, but without compromise. If it says Jesus died for our sins in our place, believe it. 
substitutionary atonement of Christ. If we're going to be careful with God's word, if you're going to be careful with God's word, you have to let it speak for itself. You have to conform. Here's another way to to think of it, another way to say it. You have to conform your feelings to the text instead of the text to your feelings. I worry sometimes when I make statements like that that are are general principles, I, I sometimes worry that it's not getting through. And I have to trust that the Holy Spirit, even now as I speak, is applying that in your life in in such a way, if you so need it, that it's getting through and it's impacting your heart and it's convicting you and convincing you that in fact maybe you haven't been conforming your feelings to the text, but instead you've been doing the other thing around. You have to conform your feelings to the text instead of the text to your feelings if you're going to let the word of God speak for itself if you're going to be careful with it, instead of rationalizing it away in order to preserve your sinful lifestyle, let it speak. Let it speak to the depths of your heart. Let it speak to the core of your soul. Instead of justifying your drunkenness or minimizing your porn or excusing your laziness or your gluttony or whatever it is, like let it speak Let it speak. Conform your life to it instead of it to your life. Otherwise, otherwise, you end up adding or subtracting from it. You end up adding or subtracting from it. Third, read it humbly. In order to be careful with God's word, hold it in high regard, let it speak for itself and read it humbly. Instead of placing yourself above the text, as if you know better, as if you've got the world all figured out, you've got you all figured out, you've got everybody else all figured out, instead of placing yourself above the text, as if you know better, like place yourself below it. Place yourself below it. Submit yourself to it. Approach it with a sense of need and reverence. Approach it with a a desire to accept what it reveals. A a disposition of, of yes, yes, I want it, I need it. Oh God, give it to me more and more. Even if it's difficult for me to hear, Lord, oh God, help me to hear it. Approach it that way, read it humbly that way. Approach it with a disposition of meekness to receive what it offers, a heart, of, a heart of humility to actually do what it says. Read it humbly. That's what I mean by that. I might mention that a good way to do that from time to time is to read it on your knees. Literally. Have you ever done that? Read it on your knees. There are few things that will conform and transform the disposition of your heart, however it was before you got in this position. There are few things that will transform your heart and soul and place this word above it than getting on your knees before it. Get on your knees before the word of God because it reminds you of where you stand and it helps your heart to follow suit. 
It reminds you that what it says is way more important than what you say. It reminds you that what God thinks is way more important than what you think. That's one way to read it humbly. Another, another is to just simply ask God to open your eyes every time you read it. As you're opening your scriptures, oh God, open my eyes to all that you would have for me. Oh God, open my eyes to see amazing things out of your word. Ask God to do that. Ask God to help you see all that it says. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalm 119, 18. It's a humble admission. That verse, those words from the psalm, psalmist, it's a humble admission that you're prone to miss God's word. When you pray like the psalmist prays, open my eyes, the eyes of my heart, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. It's a humble admission that you are prone to miss the wondrous things in his word. It's a humble admission that you're prone to be asleep. I need it so much that I put that verse in the wall of my office. Directly opposite my desk. So that every time I sit down and I open up this book on my desk, I see those words across the wall. And it reminds me to pray, oh God, open my eyes. Oh God, open my eyes. Let me see amazing, wondrous things in your word. I'm reminded to pray that prayer and read it humbly. Three ways. Three ways to be careful with God's word and avoid the dire consequences otherwise. Final reminder. Second, second reminder we see here as John begins to wind down in his vision of the end times, be ready for Christ's return. Be ready for Christ's return. That's the idea of the phrase Jesus keeps repeating here in this last chapter of Revelation and the phrase that I've been waiting to talk about for three weeks. I, I've, I've had to like physically rein my mouth in, let alone my thoughts on this one. I am coming soon. A four-word phrase that Jesus repeats several times just here in Revelation 22. He says it in verse 7. Look at it there. Behold, I am coming soon. As in, open your eyes, open your eyes. Wake up, wake up. Behold, I am coming soon. And then in verse 12, he says it again. Behold, I am coming soon. And as if that wasn't enough, you might think he's maybe trying to get something across to us. Maybe trying to remind us of something here. In verse 20, he says it a third time. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? His coming is right around the corner. So hold on and be ready. Seems really straightforward. And in one sense it is. But how can that be true and maybe you're already thinking this. Maybe you've thought this for a long time and it's a conundrum that you haven't been able to resolve in your heart and soul. 
Maybe you've heard it from somebody else, an objection. How can that be true when it was written so long ago? 1,900 years ago. How can his coming be soon? How can his words, his promise, I am coming soon, like how can that be true if it was written 1,900 years ago? It's a legitimate question. It's one that we should ask of ourselves so that we can be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. The hope of his coming doesn't get any more direct than that. It's a legitimate question. In fact, it's one that liberal scholars have used to call the whole Bible into question. True. Surely, they say, the Bible can't be inspired by God because it's not true. I mean, look at, look at this verse. Jesus didn't come soon. It's been 2,000 years. And if you can't trust that, how can you trust anything that it says? I mean, these are red letters. These are directly from Jesus. That's the objection. How can soon, soon be true when it was written so long ago? Let me give you three answers. First, in God's eyes, it is soon. In God's eyes, it is soon. Similar to what I said last week about verse 10 and the end times being near. In God's eyes, 2 Peter 3, 8, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, which means, which means it's been about two days in his mind since he said this. True. If indeed that's true, which it is, it's in the scriptures, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, that being true, that means it's been about two days since Jesus said this. So it's not only legitimate to say soon, it's entirely accurate. From God's perspective, it's entirely accurate. Oh, so often, in fact, most of the time we read the Bible from our perspective, shame on us, when we ought to be reading it from God's perspective. So much. And many times both and. Written to us, so we ought to be reading it from our perspective, but written by him, so we ought to be reading it from his perspective. And this is one of those times that we shouldn't just read it from our perspective, but from God's perspective. Behold, I am coming soon. Been about two days. Second, the phrase, I am coming soon, doesn't have to convey timeliness. It doesn't have to convey timeliness. It could suggest readiness, and does. Jesus is emphasizing readiness instead of timeliness. When he says, I am coming soon, he's emphasizing readiness instead of timeliness which is supported by several things in and of itself, the first of which is that it's been so long. The very fact that it's been so long leads us to the conclusion that he must be conveying something other than timeliness. In fact, he's exhorting us to be ready. He's exhorting us to be ready, not informing us of his timing. That's the second answer to the question how soon can be true when it was written so long ago. And it's not the first time that we've seen it. This whole idea of readiness with these different phrases of I am coming soon and, and things are near, etc. It's not the first time that we've seen the idea of readiness as opposed to timeliness. We saw it at the very beginning of Revelation as well. 
with the very same phrases. The time is near. Things must soon take place. I am coming soon. Same phrases with the same message. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Plus, in Mark chapter 13, where Jesus is also speaking of the end times, he makes this point explicitly. After saying that his coming is near, he says, be on guard, keep awake, and stay awake. It's, it's near, it's near. So be on guard, keep awake, and stay awake. In other words, be ready. His statement about timeliness, nearness, is meant to encourage readiness. Same for the Apostle James, the half-brother of Jesus, who tells us to be patient of all things. Why, why do we need to be patient if his coming is soon? If, his, if he's intending to convey timeliness with his coming? Why do we need to be told to be patient? That's incongruous. That doesn't make sense. Unless by saying I am coming soon, he's talking about readiness. James says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Just the opposite of what you would expect him to say if it was right around the corner. Just the opposite. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. That is, until everything transpires that's supposed to transpire. Be patient for the coming of the Lord until everything transpires, until, until what's supposed to transpire transpires. Verse 8, you also be patient, just like the farmer. Establish your hearts, a.k.a. be ready, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There it is again. It's near. Once again, using the concept of timeliness to emphasize readiness. Readiness. And third, the third answer to the objection this can't be true is that it's meant to give us hope. In God's eyes, it is soon. When he says, I am coming soon, it's true because in God's eyes, it is soon. Second, Jesus is emphasizing readiness instead of timeliness. And third, it's meant to give us hope, meant to impart hope, like a platoon of soldiers pinned down under enemy fire just waiting for help to arrive. Remember the analogy that I used uh, months and months and months ago, over a year ago? About the time that these soldiers think that all is lost with the, the hail of bullets raining down on them, the platoon leader hears about a rescue plan from headquarters and he says, hang on guys, hang on guys, help is on the way, it's coming soon. He goes down the line, he taps each shoulder, hang on, help is coming soon, hang on, the, the choppers will be here soon, hang on, hang on. Is he saying, is he saying that help is going to be there literally in the next few minutes? He could be, he could be. But knowing what he knows from headquarters, he could also be saying, take heart, have hope, and be ready. Be ready. Three answers that affirm the point. I am coming soon is an encouragement to hold fast and be ready for Christ's return whenever he comes. Whenever he comes. Final reminder. Then in the second part of verse 20, John responds with an expression of longing 
And I don't know about you, but to me, almost feels like it's blurted out. Like he can't help himself in the moment. Amen, he says. Come, Lord Jesus. As if to say, yes, yes, preach it, preach it. Come quickly. Maranatha, our Lord, come. You ever heard that, Maranatha? It's a... It's literally what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 22 regarding the coming of the Lord. Maranatha, it's a universal expression of longing. It's a heartfelt expression of yearning. And so is John's here in verse 20. Come, Lord Jesus, with an exclamation point. Come, Lord Jesus. Surely I am coming soon. Yes, yes, make it so and make it quick. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. A final reminder to not only be ready for Christ's return, but long for it. Be ready and long for it. Be ready for the return of Christ and long for the return of Christ. That's the idea. As with all of Scripture, it's not that we're just to observe what the apostles and prophets said and did, but we're to feel what they said and did. Feel what they felt and desire what they desired. In this case, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Messiah. Name above all names. We, we ought to long for it and call for it. Literally call for it like John. Come, Lord Jesus. That ought to occupy our prayers. That ought to be a part of our prayers. Come, Lord Jesus. Wait no more. Tarry no longer. It should be our mindset, it should be our prayer, and it should be our song, the song in our heart that is constantly going, oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. Maranatha. How about it? Is that you? I, it's not me all the time. Sad to say, but I sure am trying more of the time to have that kind of a heart so that those words are on the tip of my tongue. That disposition uh, overshadows everything that I do. I'm trying. How about you? Like, do you long for his return? Do you love him so much that you can't wait? Like, you, 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 you love him so much, you, you can't wait so much that you're like a kid at Christmas all year long, and all life long? Like, are you so tired of the sin and struggle of this world that you yearn for him to come and make all things new? Yearn for him to come and make all things right? Or are you just fine with the way things are? so caught up in your life and how good it is that, I don't know, waiting a bit wouldn't be so bad. Be honest. Or maybe you want him to hold off so that you can experience some of the things of life that you haven't. Some of the good things of life that the Lord has preserved for us in his common grace for mankind. Maybe, that, maybe that's your mindset. It was mine. When I was in college, I used to literally pray, Lord, please don't come yet. I want to get married. Seriously. 
Lord, please don't come yet. I, I knew what the word said. I knew the longing of John. I, I knew that we should have their same disposition, the same disposition as the, the apostles to desire what they desired and long for what they longed for. But I literally would pray, Lord, please don't come yet. I want to get married. But as the years went by, it didn't take long to change my tune. Not because marriage wasn't good. In fact, it was way better than I thought, at least maybe after the first year or so. <laughs> Careful is right. I thought it was great. Because of me, she thought it wasn't so great. But, but at least after that, man, marriage was better than I even thought it would be. And it continues to be better more and more. As our love for one another grows and our companionship and, and our connection and all of those things that go with a, a, a healthy, godly, biblical, Christ-honoring, Christ-centered, Christ-infused marriage. But my desires along the way also changed. The song in my heart changed. As my love for Becky grew, so did my love for Jesus. As my love for the word grew, so did my longing for Jesus. And my desire to be with him. Not just with her, but, but with him. My, my desire to, it started ramping up and my, my longing to see him ramped up and, and it, to experience the joy of his presence and the glories of his promises. All of which marriage is just intended to picture and symbolize just. Bride of Christ that we are as the church. Part of being ready for Christ's return is longing for it. I love how one of the couples in our collective expressed it recently. Great Commission Collective of which we are a part. They lead a church and a ministry in India a ministry to young girls, well over a dozen of whom they have in their home. And, and recently a short-term team from our collective visited them to bless them and help them and come alongside of them, encourage them, pray with them, all the things that good short-term mission trips and mission teams do. And right after they left, Paul and Molly wrote this. We're so thankful for all they left behind the peace in our souls and feeling cared for by our extravagant God who loves to come in sweetness and wow us. We worship at your feet and we long for more, Emmanuel. Come quickly, Lord. We are waiting to see this Jesus who refreshes our soul all at once, who takes our breath away and provides newness in the mornings when we awaken dry. Thank you for gladness in the place of the heavy. We sing your praises as you fill our mouths until we run out. Amen. Amen. What an expression of longing. What an expression of yearning. Even come quickly, Lord. Listen, if you don't long for Christ's return, you're not ready for it. If you don't long for Christ's return, you're not ready for it. And the best thing you can do is to begin to pray these three words. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, 
Forgive me of my lack of desire, God. Forgive me of my lack of longing. Forgive me of my lack of trust that you will do far more than I could ever imagine. Now and later, forgive me of all of that, Lord, and come. Like, start there. Start there. And pretty soon, you'll be saying Maranatha just like Paul. Final reminder. And then last but not least, from verse 21, rest in God's grace. Rest in God's grace. Be careful with God's word. Be ready for Christ's return. And rest, rest in God's grace. That's the final, final reminder. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. His grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus, as in the blessing and favor of Jesus. The kindness and mercy of Jesus. The gifts and care of Jesus. May it be with all, all the saints, John says, all of us. May it reside in all our hearts. May it mark all our lives. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like what a grace in and of itself. Have you ever thought about that? Or maybe you're like I have been when I get to the end of the Bible, reading through the Bible in the year or whatever it is, I get to the end of that verse, it's like, oh, finally you close the book and you don't think anything more about that last statement. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in that. Like, just the statement in and of itself is a grace. What a blessing from God to receive and, and treasure and rest in. What a grace to depend on. That he would say to us, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. It's grace upon grace. So often these final benedictions are ignored or considered niceties to end with, but lacking in any substance or significance. Just, you know, just flyover verses, blow by verses. Nothing could be further from the truth. John is speaking a blessing over us that ought to warm our heart and fill our soul. A grace that gives strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Because here it is, the grace of Jesus is exactly what we need and only what we need to walk with him, talk with him, live for him, and love him. We are nothing and we have nothing and we can do nothing apart from the grace, the unmerited favor of Jesus. Just nothing Nothing of any God-glorifying worth, that is. You say, well, I can help an old lady across the street. You sure, certainly can. But if you're doing it for yourself or you're only doing it for her alone and not for the glory of God, it's nothing. It's loss. This is a grace because the grace of Jesus is exactly what we need to walk and talk and live for him and love for him, love him. The grace of Jesus is exactly what we need to hold fast and follow him. We will never persevere in our faith unless by God's grace we do so. We will never keep the faith unless by God's grace he keeps us. And thank God that he promises to do so so that we can do so. It starts with him. It's infused with him. It's all him and it ends with him. We are followers. We are followers along the 
path of grace. It's exactly what we need to resist the temptations of the great prostitute and the coercion of the Antichrist, the grace of the Lord Jesus. Apart from that, we got nothing, folks. We got nothing as those days approach. But with it, we have everything we need, everything we need for life and godliness, exactly what we need to test the teaching of the modern-day Nicolaitans as we found in the first couple of chapters and reject the influence of the shameless Jezebels. The grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus. The blessing of Christ. His favor on our lives. As a follower of Christ with the end times upon us, rest in that. Embrace it and treasure it and apply it. From his amazing grace to choose you and save you to his unrelenting promise to hold you and keep you. Rest in it. Depend on it. Lean on it. Bask in it. Immerse yourself in it. And never come up. Rest in the grace of his amazing love. Rest in the grace of his perfect peace, his inexpressible joy, his glorious way that he's marked out for you, knowing the end from the beginning. Rest in that. Rest in his sovereign control. Rest in his blessed assurance. Rest in his eternal life. All of it and every bit of it. Rest in it. Rest. Rest in God's grace. Final reminder. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, how good it is to dwell in your house and study your word. How good it is. How good it is to bask in your word for so long, Father, 40 minutes at a time. How good are you? And so, Lord, will you remind us to be careful with it? Will you help us to be ready for you? Father, rend our hearts if need be. Rend our hearts right now if need be. Convince and convict to whatever extent you need to do. Whether we've put our feelings above the text or our lives ahead of you or whatever it is, oh God, rend our hearts so that when you rend the heavens, our longing is fulfilled. Our joy is full. Hold fast, you said, and so we do. So we do, God, looking only and always unto you, Jesus. The lamb who was slain, worthy to receive glory and honor and praise forevermore. We look to you, God. We long for you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you. Jesus, Messiah, we worship you. And we do so. We pray so. In your mighty and matchless name, amen.